Because our uh, sermon text is uh, the entirety of Matthew 19, I didn't want to, I was reluctant to ask anyone to have to read all of this, uh, so I thought I would uh, do it myself and uh, preserve some friendships. Um, I wanted, as we, as we head into Matthew 19, I just want to preface the reading with a couple of uh, observations, and the first is I wanted us to begin, before we dive into some of the parts of Matthew 19, I want you to see the whole landscape. I wanted us to see it uh, together. It's very, there's basically three uh, episodes in this chapter, and uh, they're tied together by a common theme of Jesus explaining uh, the magnitude of the claims and worth of the kingdom of heaven, and he brings it he brings the kingdom in each of the three episodes. He shocks his disciples, people who've already been with him, by explaining the worth of the kingdom of heaven. And in each of the three episodes, he brings the truth of the kingdom of heaven. He brings it into a comparative analysis uh, with some major dream or idol or treasure like marriage or sexuality or family, or youth, or money, or piety. Do I have your attention yet? And he, he demonstrates his lordship in a way that is superior over every one of those areas. So this is a, a chapter that's relevant to each of us this morning. So let's hear the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the, children come, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. 
And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers and the flower fades. Or of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are not able by ourselves to present hearts to you that are sufficiently in awe of your authority and your supreme worth over every one of our dreams and the things that capture our hearts. And we acknowledge, we acknowledge how uh, far our hearts fall from paying to you the tribute you're worthy of. And we thank you for your mercy, which we believe is rich in this word to us this morning, rich to uh, call us back to you, rich to show us your beauty in such a way that our hearts are drawn away from things that can't give us life, and rich in your readiness to give salvation to the lost today. So we pray for these great works that you would be honored in our worship. And we pray in your name. Amen. Friends, Jesus' uh, Jesus's vision is better than ours. When he looks at the world, he sees it for what it really is. He takes the true measure of the world. Uh, when Jesus looks at us, he sees us uh, for who we really are. He sees us uh, with perfect accuracy. 
He takes the true measure of our hearts. He sees what captures us. He sees what uh, thrills us. He sees what satisfies us. He sees the losses that make us afraid, and he understands with perfect clarity, far better than we do, the gains and the treasure that we seek after. Jesus sees us for who we really are, sees your heart, sees my heart for what it really is and how it works. He's taken the true measure of them. But most importantly, Jesus sees and knows himself for who he really is. He's taken the true measure of himself. And what he's calling us to do in chapter 19 is to trust his vision above ours. He knows the dreams that the world thrusts upon us. He knows uh, the, the passion of uh, the visions for our lives uh, that the world uh, encourages us to have. He understands how uh, all too ready our hearts so often are to follow the world's instructions and to be uh, conformed to the world. He understands all that. He knows that so often we spend our whole lives measuring ourselves against standards that are not his. Measuring our lives, whether in upside or downside, the measurement of how we think about fulfillment and significance and success, and also how we think about failure and insignificance and unimportance, we spend, so, so often we spend our whole lives measuring ourselves against standards that are not the standards of Jesus Christ's heart for his people. He knows all that. And he knows that the dreams that the world thrusts upon us, they are doubly unworthy. They're unworthy of our trust. They're unworthy of our confidence. They're unworthy of our hope. But more importantly, they're unworthy of him. Because he is the one in whom we are made to find our rest and our satisfaction. He's the definition of prosperity and security. He's the definition of fulfillment. And that's what he's showing his disciples in this passage. You know, the more I read this chapter, I read it over and over and over again, and you know what I kept thinking about? I kept thinking about the movie, The Wizard of Oz. And you know that scene in the end of The Wizard of Oz when finally Dorothy and, let's see if I get this right, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion and Toto, they finally make it to the Emerald City, and they're in the inner sanctum of Oz. And they're in there, and... You know, they've been, they've been coming, they've heard about the Wizard of Oz, and, you know, they're going to get what they lack from the Wizard of Oz, right? That's why they're going to the Emerald City. And they get in there, and the wizard is an absolute nightmare. There's smoke, there's mirrors, he's ye- uh, fire, he's yelling at them. There's this projection of this face up on the screen, and he's bellowing at them, and he's not kind, he's yelling at them at the top of his lungs, and he's saying, how dare you accuse the Wizard of Oz? How dare you call me into question? Because Dorothy has the temerity to say, well, if you were a good wizard, you'd keep your promises. And he says, how dare you risk the wrath of the Wizard of Oz? And they're trembling. You remember this scene? You remember what happens next? The weakest 
smallest and most fearless member of their company, Toto, who can smell a rat a mile away, leaves Dorothy and her crew and pulls this curtain back and reveals this phony who for all of his noise and all of his bellowing is powerless. Now friends, our culture, in particularly in the values that we're going to look at today, acts like it's the wizard and yells at us and makes itself look much bigger than it actually is. And Jesus, who can smell a rat far better than Toto, mercifully, graciously pulls the curtain back in our passage this morning to show us that true life is not found anywhere else except in him and in the kingdom of which he is the center. And so in order for us to understand what he's saying this morning, we have to think about idols and idolatry. And so this morning, I want to do that in three parts with you. I want to think first with you about the heart of our idolatry. I want to think secondly about the specific idols of our hearts that Jesus addresses in this passage. And then uh, I want to conclude with you by uh, rejoicing in Jesus's identity as the rightful Lord of our hearts and what makes him that rightful Lord. So let's, let's begin by thinking about the heart of our idolatry. Now, before we look at the specific idols and idolatries that Jesus is uh, challenging in this chapter, we need to understand, we need to clarify uh, what idols and what idolatry are. Now, we tend to associate idolatry with the Old Testament and with uh, uncivilized primitive people. Uh, we, uh, we tend to think about ourselves uh, as a 21st century Westerners in particular as far too sophisticated for that kind of garbage. But you know what's interesting? Do you know what the last verse of 1 John is? 1 John 5, 21, the very last verse. Little children, G- John is addressing Christians, and he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last thing the Apostle John says in 1 John. And then the other John, who's not an apostle, John Calvin, I, I felt it was important to emphasize that he was not an apostle. He said that our hearts are idol factories. What's an idol, then, if it's not just a statue? Well, what an idol is, is a God substitute. It's a counterfeit God. It's anything or anyone uh, to which or whom we ascribe powers or attributes or prerogatives that belong rightly only to God himself. It's something or someone by which we measure or according to which we measure our hope. It's something or someone we must have or we cannot live without. And I'm not talking about the things that we say with our mouths that we believe. I'm talking about the way we actually live at the heart level, what our hearts believe, what our hearts say to ourselves. What's the, what's the preaching that we are doing uh, to our own hearts and in our own minds uh, day after day? You know, the person who's... Pre- you think my sermons are long? The sermons you preach to yourself every day are far longer than anything I ever subject you to. 
all of us are preaching to eat ourselves. And an idol is anything in which you're placing your functional trust, your hope for rescue, your, your, your need for protection, something you believe that you must have in order to flourish, something by whose presence or the present by the presence of which you define blessing if i have x or x happens to me i will consider myself blessed and by by the same token by whose absence you define cursing in other words if i don't have x or x doesn't happen to me then i am not blessed it is usually a very good thing that you and I in our hearts have elevated to an ultimate thing. It's metastasized if it's become an ultimate thing. If it becomes an essential thing, it's not good anymore. It's a master and not a servant. So how does idolatry work? That's kind of abstract, I realize it. Well, idolatry is about worship. At one level, this is very simple. Idolatry is worship. It's about devotion. And what idols do is they hijack our hearts. Let me show you how, uh, how the Lord explains this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. and We're, we're going to look at the second commandment. And uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 5, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, now notice how the Lord explains how you use idols in verse 5. You shall not, notice the verbs, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, that's very helpful because one of the things the Lord is teaching us in that second commandment is that the one way we can identify uh, idols in our lives is that the, it's something or someone who is claiming our awe and reverence. You shall not bow down to them. You and I bow down to things that we're in awe of. So an idol is something that, we, uh, that, that claims and that we yield our awe and reverence to. It's something that, that we, uh, the proportions of which we are uh, assuming are larger than our lives. But notice the second thing he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now that's another dimension that helps us identify how idolatry works in our lives. It's something that's claiming our awe and reverence something that's elevated in, in our desires or affections or the way that we value it and appraise it. And, there's, and it also calls for our loyalty. Serve me. And that's how idols work. We bow down before idols when we reserve our greatest and deepest reverence for things other than God himself. What organizes your life? What propels you? We serve idols when anything other than the living God is entrusted with our deepest governing loyalties. 
Let me illustrate this uh, by looking with you at Psalm 16. David is, I'm not saying that David is being an idolater in, in Psalm 16, don't get me wrong. I'm saying that, that it's very helpful to see how uh, David speaks uh, to the Lord in Psalm 16 uh, because it, it, it's echoed in the way that we address our idols. And you can see this in your own life. Look at the beginning of Psalm 16, verse 1. Excuse me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. See, the way an idol works is an idol's a parasite. It's not original. It claims for us, and we yield, when, we're, when we cross a line, we're yielding to it a place that belongs only to God himself. Just look at verse 1. How would you fill this blank in? Preserve me blank. For in you I take refuge. What are you looking to for security? What are you looking to for safety? Preserve me blank. For in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O investments. Preserve me, O a stable family structure. For in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O end of my singleness. For in you I take refuge. See, this is security and hope. And then he goes on to say, verse 2, I say, how would you fill this in? I say to blank, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Those are really two ways of saying the same thing. You are my Lord is another way of saying, I have no good apart from you. And anything about which you or I say, I have no good apart from you, we are also saying that that thing is our Lord. Does that make sense? So friends, are you saying at your heart level, I say to marriage, I say to wealth, I save to the end of my singleness, I save to my kids turning out the way that I want to that reflects well on me. I say to my future opportunities if I'm a young person. I say to the achievement of all my goals as a young person, you are my Lord. And unless I have what I describe you to be, I will have no good. Friends, what's happened there, if that's what your heart is doing, is something that's good has become something that's ultimate and something that's essential. Look down at verse 5. What David says, a statement of faith. It's a wonderful celebration of God and his satisfaction. But, but often our hearts will say things like this. Sex is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my eye. What The way I really define a feasting and a full life is money, prosperity, maybe even my own piety. If I am being obedient, if I am 
uh, in my own estimation, if I'm living a moral life, that's my portion, that's my cup. Friends, if that's how your heart's talking, that means it's walking in the direction of idolatry. And so we all need to ask a question, questions of our hearts. Are we, our hearts in awe of something besides this God? Is something besides God himself our chosen portion and our cup? Is, is his a gifts to us, his provisions for us, is that how we define a beautiful inheritance? Or must the lines fall on uh, moral behavior? Must the lines fall that make me prosperous? Must the lines fall that, that end my singleness and that bring me a sexual fulfillment in order for me to say, yes, now I have a beautiful inheritance? Because if that is what our hearts are saying, our hearts are giving to things that are not God a place that only belongs rightfully to Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of the specific idols that Jesus challenges now, the idols of our hearts. And it's really a breathtaking sight. I know it's very easy. Let's go back to Matthew 19. It's very easy when we're reading this text and we think, okay, well, he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's... he's, uh, He's on his way to being crucified, and we think, okay, this is happening in Judea. It's the first century. What in the world does it have to do with us in the 21st century? But when you stop and think about what the conversations that he has on the way, it is very contemporary. Isn't it interesting how in our culture right now, uh, the irony of the whole idea of marriage in a it, you know, as the fruit of 50 years of sexual uh, libertine philosophy that, that what would come around now is that, the, is that marriage, by some definition, that institution, by some definition, would now become the great treasure. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has things to say about that in Matthew 19. And romance and sex and families, and money, and piety. And in every one of these cases, what he is showing us is he is wanting, he's pulling the curtain back to show us that these things, even though they're good, are not ultimately good. They're not essentially good. And he's setting himself forward as the real treasure of all the treasures. So let's look first at how he unwinds our dreams of marriage, romance, and sex in verses 3 through 12 in this discussion on divorce that is brought to him by the Pharisees. You notice in the way that Jesus responds to the question in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He takes that question and his answer uh, is so large and it sweeps in its breath uh, uh, just some revolutionary ideas about marriage, the making and unmaking of marriage, about the proper boundaries for human sexuality, and therefore by implication as well, uh, uh, profound um, truths about romance. 
Friends, from, I don't care where you stand in our culture from virtually every angle, whether it's in our, in our movies or in our music or other media, uh, our culture urges us to be in awe of marriage, to be in awe of it, to be in awe of sex, to be in awe of romance. And in fact, to such an extent that those things are regarded as essential and ultimate. That they are, for different people, different ones have, have uh, varying strengths, but, but in the main, and of course I'm summarizing here, but in the main, those things are presented in our culture as both essential to what a fulfilling human life is and ultimate. So that if you are the worst night, the dream, the dream that our culture sets forth in this area is that you would be romantically engaged in a marriage of your choice, a sexually active as you want to be sexually active. And the nightmare that our culture sets before us is celibacy and singleness. Now, friends, Jesus is very merciful, and he pulls the curtain back to reveal that that wizard is an imposter. He teaches us to be in awe of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 12, especially the end of verse 12. The things that Jesus says in this last phrase are just absolutely staggering. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Do you know do you know what Jesus is saying there? He is saying, and it's very dangerous in our culture, he is saying that marriage and romance and sex are not essential and they are not ultimate. The kingdom of heaven is a higher value and a higher treasure than those things. Oh my goodness, friends, do you know how important it is to be armed with Jesus' vision over our own? Do you remember where we began this sermon? And I said that Jesus looks at the world and has taken the true measure of the world. He looks at men and women, our hearts, and has taken the true measure of our hearts. He knows himself. He knows his Father. He knows the kingdom with perfect clarity. And this is not just him expressing an opinion. This is him describing objective reality. He is saying that the kingdom of heaven is worth more than the most fulfilling earthly marriage, worth more than sex, worth more than romance, and that it is easily worth celibacy and singleness, and his life is a testament to that. Now, that's challenging. That's the way a prophet talks. What Jesus is saying is that there is only one messianic marriage. There's only one, and it's his marriage to his people. There's only one marriage available on earth that will rescue you. 
that will deeply satisfy you. And I know that some of you are saying, yeah, Francis, but you're married. So that's easy for you to say. Well, you know, it's not easy for me to say. It is true that I'm married, and it's true that I'm very happily married. But think about it. Who better than someone who is happily married to assure you that there is only one messianic marriage? That's an assertion that any Christian who is married can say from a heart of conviction. So friends, Jesus is saying to us, he's setting forth something so superior to our culture's treasure in this area of our sexuality and romance and marriage, and he is putting forth the kingdom of heaven as a superior treasure. And then he moves, it's interesting how the very next episode is about family and childhood, and therefore, by extension, the future in verses 13 through 15. Friends, think about how our culture addresses us. Think about what the wizard says to us as parents with on the screen and all the noise and the bellowing. It says, hey, if your parents stand in awe of your children, stand in awe of them, give your life to them, let them choose so many things for you, identify your life with them so much that you begin to measure you begin to live vicariously through them so that, so that they become, in many ways, their performance, either up or down, becomes a surrogate measure for your own well-being. So if your kid's stock is up, your heart rises because you are looking to your children or I am looking to my children as a referendum on whether or not I made the right decisions, the right choices, whether or not I'm a good guy. And if we're kids, we're children, what our culture teaches us to be in awe of is ourselves, our own potential, future opportunities, to such a degree that our achievements and our performance become the measures of our worth. And whether we're parents or youth, doesn't matter the parental generation or the rising generation, what our culture does is it sets before, like that wizard, it sets before us with a very loud voice certain ambitions and it blesses and makes promises about uh, the lines of certain ambitions. Things that it says will be the path to blessing, education, athletics, profession, family structure, and our culture sets these things up, and we follow far too often in lockstep with these visions for what the meaning of parenting is, what the greatest thing we can transmit to our kids from the parenting generation to the rising generation, and kids absorb this message, and we let them absorb it, about what, what their great opportunity is, and the greatest ambition that they could have is to go to Harvard. Friends, do you think it's possible for somebody to be the dean of the Harvard Medical School and to be utterly impoverished in the eyes of God? I hope you do. Education is not the measure of significance. Profession is not the measure of your worth. Athletics is not the measure of your worth. Jesus again, again, so mercifully challenges the orthodoxy of our culture's worship. And he says something staggering. 
The parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. And the disciples say, hey, don't do that. They actually rebuke the people. It's not even gentle. They say, are you nuts? He's a busy man. And Jesus says something. Think about what the ambition of the parents was. The ambition was, hey, we just want you to touch our kids and to pray for them. Which is a laudable goal, right? Just, just, Jesus, if they just get around you and you touch them, we're going to be satisfied because it's almost like you're, you know, we believe you're good. We don't really know what it means to be in relationship with you. But if our kids are kind of in the vicinity, if we bring them to church, just to be around that Jesus talk, it'll be good for the kids. But in the process of correcting the disciples, Jesus also corrects the parents because he says something absolutely staggering. He says, let those little children come to me. Because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the parents were under-asking. And Jesus, when he says this, friends, is utterly going in a head-on collision with the way our culture teaches us to think about parenting and the way it, it teaches us to think about what it means to be young and what it means to be a childhood, be, be, be a child. Because what he's saying is the purpose of any, every generation is to seek first the kingdom of God. He's saying the meaning of childhood is that you would belong to the kingdom of heaven and know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And therefore, parents, what it means is that you're not just coming, if God has entrusted kids to you, they're not just there for, for Jesus to get an occasional touch on them. No, they are there. You are to teach them. They're in your family so that you will tell them the truth, that they have been claimed by the kingdom of heaven. And so that they know, regardless of where their own choices take them in the years that follow their presence in your house, they know that there is a superior claim, whether or not they yield to it. That all generations share and are to be shaped by the same ambition to conduct and measure ourselves in every season of life according to the same definition of fulfillment and significance. You see what Jesus is saying here? You can be uneducated and non-athletic and not a professional and fulfill in the highest way what it means to be a human being. And you can be totally educated and a professional and athletic and have a great family and lots of grandkids for the parents that you've produced and be as far away as you can imagine from really fulfilling the purpose of what it means to be a human being because you have not acknowledged that you belong to the kingdom of heaven And then what about the dreams that we have? Oh, and let me say this. You know, when I, when I got to that section, one of the things that I, I just kept thinking, I kept thinking about my own life and people I know. You know, one of the things that I just find so hard about being an adult is how to live with the dreams that I had when I was a kid. 
because some of them have come true, but most of them have not. And there were ways that I thought about myself and thought about what tomorrow would be when I was 12 years old. And in God's gracious providence, my life has not, uh, was not written the way that I thought it would be. And the temptation when you're in those kind of reflective moments is to, at least for me, if you're Mike Francis, you criticize yourself. You think, well, you know, I took a wrong turn there. I made some bad choices there. If this hadn't happened to me, I would have been able to, to get to where I wanted to go. And that's how I tend to think. And, and some of us, in some areas for me, it's true, I know for some of you, so, some of us, as adults, are beating ourselves up and have been doing it for decades because we think we blew it. And that the train has left the station and it ain't ever coming back. Now friends, if you're in Christ, that's a lie. If you're in Christ, I don't care what your ambitions were when you were a kid. Let's say your ambition was to be the President of the United States. And you're not that. Friend, if you're a Christian today, do you realize that what you are right now is so much more infinitely greater than the greatest dream you held for yourself as a child or as a young person before you were a Christian? Do you believe that? If the kingdom of heaven belongs to you through Jesus Christ and you belong as a citizen of that kingdom to him, then what I just said is true about you. So stop punishing yourself and start celebrating the grace of God. And the last, the last one that Jesus talks about, the last idol of our heart, is uh, riches in verses 16 through 30. And he does it in a very interesting way because, because what he shows us through, the, there's really two parts of the exchange. There's the exchange he has with the rich young man and then there's the debriefing he has with his disciples after the rich young man leaves. And what's interesting in that pair of exchanges is that Jesus makes it very clear that there's more than one kind of riches, doesn't he, in this exchange. I mean, just think about the young man. The young man approaches him before we ever get to talking about money or before he ever talks about his possessions or Jesus challenges him about his possessions, the young man comes to him and, and basically thinks, hey, I'm rich morally, right? I've kept the law. I'm rich on the basis of my own piety. I've got two kinds of prosperity. I've got moral prosperity, and I have financial prosperity. There's more than one way to be rich, and because there's more than one way to be rich, there's more than one kind of riches that can make it difficult for that rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And there is more than one kind of riches that can make it impossible 
for a human being to enter the kingdom of God. And you notice what comes up with Peter. Do you remember? Do you remember what, what makes the young man go away sorrowfully is when Jesus says, okay, I understand you think you've kept the law, which he hadn't. But you notice what Peter does as soon as the guy leaves and Jesus makes his comment. Notice how Peter, and again, do we, do we thank God for Peter? I thank him for Peter. Look at verse 27. This is a pretty solemn scene. And Peter says, See, we have left everything and followed you. In other words, Jesus That guy over there, he didn't hack it. But we have left everything and followed you. We actually came through with it. So what are we going to get? See, Peter thinks he's rich. And you know what Jesus says to be in awe of? Jesus says, be in awe. You you know, you and I have dreams. We want to be good people. We want to keep the rules. We want to to be recognized as good people. We want to be acknowledged as, as morally successful. And yes, we even want financial riches as some kind of measure that we made good choices, that we're under God's blessing. I know I want those things. But you know what Jesus is telling us to be in awe of? Not, of? not of the riches that the world measures, you know, in goodness or in uh, finances, in morality or piety. No, what Jesus says that we're to be in awe of is our poverty. He says, be in awe of your poverty. Be amazed that even somebody as pious as this young man could be so impious. Be amazed at your own poverty before God, that there is only one who is good, that there is no human goodness that can approach the goodness of God. Be in awe of your poverty and the riches of God's goodness in comparison, and be in awe that this kingdom, in all of its abundance and riches, is made available not by the achievements of men, but by the gift of God to those for whom it would otherwise be inaccessible and impossible. Be in awe of that kingdom. And be in awe of the king who gives himself so freely to sinners. Friends, what Jesus is claiming is ultimate loyalty in all of these exchanges. And why in the world? I mean, he's saying, I think about it. He's taken every one of our cultural dreams and he said, not good enough. Not good enough. Romance, not good enough. Marriage, not good enough. Sex, not good enough. Kids, not good enough. Family, not good enough. Future opportunities, not good enough. Harvard Medical School, dean, tenure, fortune, not good enough. And he's saying, organize your life around that, that those things aren't good enough. He's saying, follow me in such a way that your heart isn't captive by those things. Why in the world would you do that? Why in the world would you follow Jesus Christ against the grain of so much of our cultural wisdom? Why is it that he has a right to declare himself the exclusive and rightful Lord of our hearts? Because he does objectively deserve to have first place in our hearts. 
And he's jealous for that first place. And if there are things, if there are competitors, if there are competitors for first place in our heart, Jesus will, in his mercy, pull the curtain back. And sometimes it's going to feel like a cruel kindness, my friends. Because we don't like to see how much we've bought in to the Oz-esque wisdom. But it will be a kindness because Jesus always means to lead us into life. Friends, Jesus has an absolute right to first place in our hearts, but the question is, is he winning our hearts? Has he won our hearts? Is he triumphing in your heart and in my heart right now? Why should we trust him? Why should we embrace him on such a massive scale? And where does the power for making that move come from? How can you possibly acknowledge and follow the wisdom of Jesus Christ, which is so mightily against the grain of our culture's wisdom? There are two ways of thinking about Jesus, and only one of them is right. One way of thinking about him is that he comes alongside the direction that we're already going, and we're a little bit off course, and we listen to him, and he pulls us on course that you know what really is wrong with our culture and therefore with the heart with the culture what's really long wrong with our hearts and therefore the culture that all of our hearts together are building is it's just a little bit off course and so what we really need is Jesus to come in and kind of take the wheel for a while and get us back on the right track that's one way of thinking about it that's not how Jesus thinks about his relationship to our hearts of the world because the other way is there's a head-on collision And that's what Jesus is describing here. He wants exclusive place. He deserves exclusive place. And why should we sacrifice all the wisdom and learnings of the world in order to give him that place? Well, because of what he has sacrificed for us. That's why. What he's going to do in the course of this gospel in the coming chapters and what we know he has done Because for the sake, I just want you to think about these three episodes again with me. Because for the sake of the one messianic marriage, go back to verses 3 through 12. For the love story, for the sake of the love story, of all love story, and the union of all unions, he kept himself pure. He made himself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He did not marry. He was celibate. Because the kingdom of heaven was worth so much to him. He lived and died for his bride as a celibate man. And for the sake of his bride's, for the sake of his bride's entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is a love story, right? This is the romance of all romances. This is the one messianic marriage. This, this bridegroom who came into the world and held fast held fast to his bride, took her flesh so that she would be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. His father, remember what he says in verse 6, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And God his father had joined him, the eternal son, with sinners together. And he was not going to let anyone separate that bond. And he came in faithfulness to that providential ordering of his father and he fulfilled it out of love for his bride. He was willing, my friends, to be torn asunder on the cross as the bride price for his church to be torn asunder for us 
so that we would never be torn asunder from him for all eternity. Friends, that's a love story. That's a love story. That's a love unlike any other love. It's a love unlike the best love in the best, most enduring earthly marriage. That is the marriage to which all other marriages are given to point. And isn't such love worthy, friends, of your sexual purity? Isn't it worthy of your fidelity to your spouse through the hardest seasons of life? Isn't it worth your commitment and even your gratitude in your singleness, in your widowhood, in your post-divorce life? Isn't it worth that? If it was worth Jesus' suffering, surely there are resources in that love to sustain us in even the most difficult relationship or absence thereof. In every season of his life, Jesus did what none of us has done. He stewarded it as the rightful possession of the kingdom of heaven. And in every season of his life, infancy, toddlerhood, childhood, youth, adolescence, adulthood, what he did in that season of life is he honored the claim that that season of life, what it meant to be human in that season of life belonged to the kingdom of heaven and that in that season of life all the riches of the kingdom of heaven could belong to anyone in that season. Friends, he did that for us even when he knew that vision would lead him to the cross and his own death. And finally, what about the last episode? with the rich young man and the disciples. You know, Jesus describes a very difficult problem. If you look at verses 23 and 24, he's describing a very difficult problem that has come into view because of the rich young man. He says, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a big problem, he's saying. If you're rich on any index, it's going to be very hard. No, it's going to be impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's a big problem. But you know what an even bigger problem is? How is it that a holy God is going to open his kingdom to sinners? That's a much bigger problem. That's the biggest problem in the universe. That's the problem Jesus came to answer through his life and through his death. The answer to that problem is Jesus himself. Friends, he, when he's looking at that rich young man, do you, know, do you know who Jesus Christ is? He is the richest young man. He's the one with more possessions than anyone else. He's the one from the best family, as it were. He's the one who has kept all the commandments. He's the one who left all that he had, left all of his glory, to fulfill the commandments that that others might enter into life. He's the richest young ruler who came to give his life, to spend every last trace of the fortune of his glory, to sell it, to let it all be taken away for him on the cross. 
to bear all of our shame in, his, in our place on the cross, to make all of his fortune available. He's willing to sell all that he had to do the very thing that he was commanding the young man to do, but who was unwilling to do it. He did sell all that he had, gave up all of that he possessed, and gave it for the poor himself. Friends, that's a love and that's a sacrifice and that's a loyalty that you and I will not find anywhere else. We can't purchase it with money. But it's given to us as sinners. He is the first who made himself the last that we might be joined with him in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what dream our culture urges upon us. It doesn't matter what dream our hearts are ready to seize. None of them is, none of those dreams is as good as the Jesus Christ who stands forth in this chapter. You know why? Because he's not a dream. His kingdom is not a dream. He and his kingdom are the most real things of all. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now that in your mercy you would, uh, and in your kindness you would continue uh, to cleanse the temple of our hearts by your power and by showing us your loveliness. Lord, grant that we would know what it means to trust you, to give you that first place and to rest in your sufficiency for us regardless of our station in life. And we pray in your name. Amen. Please stand.